Tonight, I want to direct our attention to the theme of God's goodness, the theme of God's goodness. Will you turn initially with me to 1 Samuel 21? 1 Samuel 21. David is running for his life. He is anointed king of Israel by Samuel, and yet for likely another 10 years of his life, he's on the run. He's living in caves. He's running from his father-in-law, Saul. It says in 1 Samuel 23 that Saul sought David every single day. It's no surprise then that David employs a term throughout the Psalms that God is his rock. When David had nowhere else to turn, God was his rock, his refuge, his protector, and his home. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. David is running from Saul, and it reads, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul, and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart. And greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house. David fakes insanity and lunacy to preserve his own life. He salivates and spits and scratches at the door and drools down his beard in order to demonstrate to Achish, I'm not a threat. I'm just an insane man. Now look at the beginning of 1 Samuel 22. It says, so David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Now would you turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. It is against the backdrop of this very account that David will pen this psalm. It says in the script, a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, same man, who drove him away. And he departed. I love the Psalms. We live in a world of plasticity and posturing, but in the Psalms, there is no stoic denial of emotion. The Psalms are full of real people in real trouble crying out to God. And in this Psalm, there are enemies, there are fears, there are difficulties and distresses. But in the midst of it, the psalmist is going to bless the Lord at all times. David, in the context of what seems to be a very embarrassing episode in his life where he seemed to lack trust in Yahweh, is going to testify to the goodness of God. And tonight I want to look at three scenes with you, if you will, regarding the goodness of God. Three themes or scenes regarding the goodness of God. One thing to note is that Psalm 34 is an acrostic psalm, which means that each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet with but one exception. But three themes for us in this 34th Psalm, the first of which is the experience of God's goodness. I want to read verses 1 through 10, and I'll focus initially starting with verse 4. But 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. 
His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. In verse eight, David says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he is inviting us to experience the goodness of God. This is quite the confession. David is saying, in order to be satisfied by God, you cannot merely affirm the doctrine of his goodness. You must taste it. He is going far beyond the scope of checking the box of God's attributes or God's character. He wants you to experience it like he has. He's not borrowing this category from someone else's experience, but we do that, don't we? We often live vicariously through the photos people take, the vacations that they take, or the homes that they live in. But David is not suggesting that God is good in a vacuum. He isn't borrowing from the experience of someone else. He is recounting and retracing all that God has done. And he is saying, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste that God is good means that we give the goodness of God a sampling, an examining in our own life. But how do we examine or how do we taste that God is good? Well, in this passage, one of the ways that we do that in David's terms is that we call on God in our hour of need. David was between a rock and a hard place. He had nowhere to go and nowhere of escape, but he had one thing he could do, and that was to cry out to God. And it is experiences like this, when you are in danger, when you are facing temptation, or even when you are enslaved to sin, and you cry out to God for deliverance, and he does so, only those types of people can say, God is good, and I've tasted that he is good. Let's examine David's experience together, starting in verse four. David says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David is saying, in the midst of my despair, in the midst of the darkness of the valley I was in, God has heard my cry. David does not say here that God delivered him from his trouble. He says that God delivered him from his fear amidst the trouble. Trouble was David's middle name. Yet there is a testimony here that David says, God has rescued me from my fear. Look with me at verse five. He says, they looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. Faces are radiant. There is something different about those who look to God amidst their despair Their countenance is changed. Even when they're walking in the midst of affliction or persecution or distress, they know that their God is in complete control. And when they look to God, they do not find a cold shoulder. They find a helping hand. When we see someone that is beaming with joy, we say, what happened to you? What what do you mean, what happened to me? It's written all over your face. Tell me, tell me what happened. 
And David says, you need to understand something about the Christian. Every single face is an apologetic. Those who look to God, their countenance is one of radiance. Even when the world is dragging them down, the Lord lifts up the countenance of those who look to him. God's goodness is written on the face of those who run to him. Paul says this elsewhere, that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And even in the midst of a time where David was on the run, he's living in caves, he's reflecting on that time and saying, God didn't just get me through it. He gave me a joy in the midst of it. Look at verse six. He says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. David has been on the run for nearly a decade or will be on the run for nearly a decade He's alone often. Have you ever felt alone or isolated? This is how David felt. And there's a style of prayer that David often employs that is the natural expression of pain. David wasn't always articulate. He didn't always wax eloquently. His prayer wasn't always artful or poetic. Not every prayer that David records is an acronym or an acrostic. But David could cry. And he said, and the Lord heard his cry. Great prayers aren't always long prayers. And poor man's cries are powerful in heaven. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. David understands that God is not just omniscient and omnipresent in the sense where he has a general understanding of everything that's going on. He is personally invested in protecting him from the forces of darkness. David says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. You may be unaware of the deliverances in your life, but David is reflecting. He's looking back upon his life and he's saying, I would not be where I am today. I may not even be alive today if it was not for the providential, delivering hand of God. David says this is true for everyone who fears the Lord. If you are a God-fearer, your life is a storybook filled with colorful pictures where you can look back and say, God was surely there. Surely he was there and he delivered me. Now we return to this high point and Verse eight, and I wanna camp here for quite a few minutes. David says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Are you persuaded that God is good? That he is really, really good? Good meaning benevolent, kind, gracious. What we just sang, Jesus strong and kind. Examine God's goodness with me for just a moment. Can you reflect on God's goodness in blotting out your sin where your sin abounded? God's grace abounded all the more. Can you recall the tracings of providence in your life? Can you remind yourself that you have never done anything to prompt the goodness of God and that he loves you with omniscient knowledge of you? What does that mean that he loves you with omniscient knowledge of you? Meaning that God's love for you has never been disillusioned by the version of yourself that you present to him. 
John 2.25 says that he knows every man and he doesn't need anyone to testify concerning him because he knows your heart. Every nook and cranny of your head and heart, he knows it completely. And yet he pours out, demonstrates, and declares his love to you all the same. We have many faults, he has forgiven them. We have many wounds, he has healed them. We have wondered and he has brought us back. We may acknowledge the realities of God's goodness doctrinally, but the psalmist is after something else entirely. He does not say to agree and affirm that God is good. He says to what? Taste and see. This is the language of experience. David says to examine God's goodness by tasting, to behold his goodness by seeing. David is going to employ similar language elsewhere. He wants you to know that there is a realness to knowing God. It's not cardboard Christianity. He says in Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Psalm 19, 10, your words are treasured above gold. Yes, fine gold, sweeter than the drippings of honeycomb. Psalm 63, verse five, my soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness and my mouth offers praise with joyful lips. This is what real faith looks like. It is a satisfaction in the tasting and seeing of the goodness of God. David says, taste the goodness of God, meaning that we need to examine it. And then he says, we need to see the goodness of God, to see God. What does it mean to see God? And where else do we see that? Even that phrase. Well, in Matthew 5, 8, Jesus will say, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall what? See God. What does Jesus mean? Well, I think two things briefly. To see God means to be admitted into his presence. When every three months I feel like I break another bone or I tear another ligament and I'm due for a surgery. And I go and I'm waiting in the doctor's office and they say the doctor will what? See you now. And it's not just that I'm going into his office and I'm gonna lay my eyes on him. It means that I'm going to be admitted into his presence. And that's why elsewhere in the Psalms will say, come into his presence, draw near to God. To see God means that you no longer just affirm, yeah, God is omnipresent. It means he's near to me. It means to be admitted into his presence in the sense where you know that, you believe that, and you live your life in light of that. But secondly, it means not only to be admitted into God's presence, it means to apprehend his awesomeness and his beauty. In John 14, 21, Jesus will say, he who loves me, will obey my commandments and the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I and my father will come and we will disclose ourselves to him. I will manifest myself to him. I will make myself known to him. Jonathan Edwards says this, to see God is this. It is to have an immediate, sensible and certain understanding of God's glorious excellency and love. When we dwell here, we dwell at the fountain and spring of pleasure, meaning the manufacturing plant of pleasure is when you see God for who he really is. The greatest pleasure, Edward says, that God has given you is to see him through the eyes of faith. This is what will make heaven, heaven. Edwards continues and says, it consists consists in a sense of the heart of the supreme beauty And sweetness, if you read the Puritans, one of the words that will stand out to you is that word sweetness of the holiness and moral perfection of divine things. To see God is to apprehend God's goodness. 
Like at the end of the book that bears his name, Job will say these things after God had declared his sovereignty and goodness for four chapters. Job says, these things I have always heard with my ears, but now my eyes, what? See, Job is saying, now, now I get it. It's clicking with me. This type of seeing is what Paul prays for, for the Ephesian church. Can you keep your finger in Psalm 34 and flip with me? to Ephesians 1. I want you to see this with your own eyes in God's word. To see God is to be admitted into his presence, to apprehend his awesomeness and his beauty. And Paul is going to pray this for the Ephesian church. Look with me at Ephesians 1, verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Paul says, I want you, I want your eyes to be opened. He says, I want you to see more than you're seeing right now. He says, I want you to deeply apprehend the goodness of God. Consider the hope that you have in Christ. Consider the inheritance laid up for you and consider the power that enables you. Who can taste that God is good? What type of person? Well, not an unbeliever. Because Matthew 13, 13 says, seeing they don't see. Only those who have been reborn have regenerated taste buds to taste the food of the living. Unbelievers may assent to truths regarding God's nature, but they don't really see God. There are others, potentially even in here, who can declare the panoply of God's attributes, can sing amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Yet with the eyes of their heart and with the palate of their soul, they've never really said, this is amazing. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my all. So how does this happen in our life? Well, faith is the soul's eye that sees that God is good. Faith is the soul's palate that tastes that God is good. Martin Luther says this, and this I call tasting. When I do with my very heart believe that Christ has given himself to me and that I have my full interest in him and that he beareth and answereth for all of my sins, all of my transgressions, all of my harms, and that his life is my life. And then he says this, when this persuasion is thoroughly settled upon my soul, it yieldeth wonderful and incredible taste. Solomon, who had everything money could buy, says the eye is not satisfied with seeing, but there is one type of seeing that truly satisfies the soul, and it is the seeing of God. Truth is experiential. I want to talk about this for a moment because it is possible to spectrum swing, or one might say pendulum swing. It is possible to respond, I want you to think with me, it is possible to respond to culture's overemphasis of the love of God at the diminishment of all of his other attributes that when we see a billboard that says God is love, we say, yes, but he's holy. Or it's possible also when a culture emphasizes experience at the expense of truth and abuses experience that we say no experience, no experience, just the truth, just the truth. But we cannot let culture steal biblical categories 
many churches today, if they had to put a slogan on their worship, it would be, come on in, we'll turn the lights down low, we'll turn the music way up. Because they're chasing experience at the expense of truth. But it would be an inappropriate response to say that knowing the truth and knowing Christ isn't in fact experiential in the sense that it's real. It's wonderful. It's incredible. It's soul satisfying. The man after God's own heart wants you to know God's goodness is not just a box you check. It is a reality that you experience. We would do well in committing our lives and dying for the truth, amen? But knowing the truth is never the end. It is always the means to the end. And the end is knowing God. And of course, we cannot know God apart from his truth, but knowing the person of Jesus Christ is our aim. If your finger is still in Ephesians 1, flip over with me to Ephesians 3 for a moment. This is Paul's prayer once again. He says, so that in 3.17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Verse 19 says that there is a knowledge that surpasses knowledge, meaning that this is more than mere fact we may all agree that there is a difference between an intellectual understanding of something and a spiritual understanding of something. You mean what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person doesn't understand the wonder of this. Do you know what the natural person can do? say that God is good. Do you know what the natural person cannot do? Taste and see that God is good. Understanding in your mind is different than the sense in your heart that is cultivated when you are feeling the the reality and know the reality and are convicted by the reality and truth that God is good. And as with Samson's lion, it is possible to have sweet honey inside of a dead carcass. And it is possible to know these realities factually and never have them thrill your soul. Have you tasted that God is good? Have you seen that God is good? You could have your PhD in food science. Know the macronutrient of every single calorie, every single gram. But if you do not eat, you will die. Alternatively, you could be completely oblivious to what you're eating. Going, I like yellow. And then you take a bite and you could have no idea of the grams or the macronutrients. But if you taste it and it fills your soul, you will live. And if you tasted that the Lord is good, you want more. And that's why it says in 1 Peter 2, like newborn babies crave the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Then it says what? If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. William Perkins, the Puritan, says that one of the surest indicators that you have been born of God is that you long for more of him. David's words here propel us to consider that if you reflect on the times in your life where you've tasted and seen that God is good, it 
It is often conjoined with the times in your life where you have drunk deeply from the cup of difficulty and from tribulation and distress. And that's what often happens in the believer's life. We often have a renewed and deepened taste of God's goodness after great difficulty. But if you return to Psalm 34, the tasting of God's goodness is reserved not just for those who call on God in their hour of need, but furthermore, the tasting and seeing of God's goodness is reserved for those who fear God. In verse 9, it says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Verse 11, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Verse 12, who desires life? Well, the sinless man in verse 13, who keeps his tongue from evil. Then God is taste, or tasted and seen his goodness by those who are righteous in verses 17, verses 19, and 15. There's a theme here. Do you want to taste the goodness of God? Then you must be resolved to part with sin. The profound blessing of experiencing the goodness of God is never experienced by those who live a double life. Those with one foot in the world never wade deeply into the ocean of God's goodness. This is what Spurgeon used to talk about. He used to say many Christians, every single Christian in here has been granted access into the ocean of God's goodness. But he says many are content, content to wade and waddle ankle deep in the ocean that God has extended to them. God is holy. He hates sin. So if you want to taste his goodness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you can sing with a full heart the song my mom used to wake me up with when I was a boy. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within what? My heart. I know his goodness. I've tasted his goodness. You ask me how I know he lives? It's because the spirit of God, Romans 5, has poured out the love of God into my heart so that I know this love truly is amazing. And I know it. And then David says at the end of verse 8, how blessed, how happy is the man who takes refuge in him the scripture issues a divine congratulations. Good on you. Happy are you to those who taste and see and run to God as their refuge. So first, the experience of God's goodness. And secondly here, I want to look with you at the expression of God's goodness. The expression of God's goodness. And we'll look at verses one through three and just circle back for a moment. And then verses 11 through 14 the expression of God's goodness. When I was 16, shortly after my birthday, my dad woke me up at six in the morning and he said, hey, Johnny, put your suit on. And I was like, where are we going? Um, he dropped me off at the top of Lyons Avenue um, and he said, men work, go find a job, don't come home till you have one. I was like, you're kidding me. Um, there's that heritage. Uh, no, he, he was, go work, men, no, men work, go, don't, don't come home to you find a job. And apparently that day, Subway didn't think I had what it took to assemble a sandwich. But I, um, I ended up getting a job the next day at a restaurant where my older brother and my older sister were working. And I worked in restaurants, uh, all of high school really, and all of college when I went to master's. And I, I 
became interested in the food industry, and I spent almost all of my evenings there working, serving tables. One thing about restaurants is that 60% of them fail in their first year. And many people starting restaurants think that their creative strategy or their menu or their restaurant aesthetic will enable them to be one of the 20% of restaurants that survive into year six. They might have a great social media campaign to get people in the restaurant, but there is one strategy of marketing that has worked for thousands of years without fail. You know what it's called? Word of mouth. Those who like what they've tasted, share it with others. Have you been? You haven't tried? You're kidding. It's amazing. The expression of God's goodness. The answer to your problem with evangelism likely doesn't lie with a course. It lies with your tasting and seeing of the goodness of God. Having a healthy walk with God is the surest on-ramp to the highway of gospel proclamation. It's written all over your face already. Your countenance is already radiant. And not only is it on your face, it's coming out of your mouth because you want to express it. Look back with me at verse one. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David says, I am resolved. I'm determined. Because of God's goodness, he rightfully so monopolizes his creature's praise. Regardless of the situation, the circumstance, David is determined to bless the Lord when he's basking in the sun of God's favor or when he's pummeled by the waves of adversity. He says, I have tasted something so profoundly wonderful. I have to express it. I've drunk deeply from the well of God's kindness. And I always have a reason for why I should bless the Lord, not only in my heart, but with my mouth. Verse two, David says, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. David says, can I brag for just a moment? No, not, not of Goliath, not of the 10,000 slain, but in the goodness of God. You were made to boast. The fall distorted and skewed boasting, but you were made to boast. Jeremiah 9, let not the strong man boast in his strength or the wise man in his wisdom nor the rich man in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this. What? That he understands and knows me. And David says, the humble will hear this type of boasting and they will rejoice. There is only one type of boasting that is not repugnant to the humble man. And it is when someone boasts in the Lord. Have you noticed that humble people flock together? They hang out together? It's not because none of them boast. It's because when they do boast, they're boasting in the goodness of of God. Verse three, David says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David is saying, all the goodness I've experienced deserves so much praise and I cannot offer the praise that God deserves as a one-man band. I'm a skilled poet. I'm a skilled musician. But trust me, a symphony is deserved. A choir is commanded. You and you and you and you. Let's lift up the name of God. Join me in my joy. Let's sing together. Singing is not the introduction to church. Hope you understand that. Singing is the natural expression of those who have tasted something 
profoundly good and don't want to just worship in response individually. They want other people to join them. I cannot give God the glory he deserves in isolation. So children, come here. Elderly, come here. I want to lift up the name of God. Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good and his mercy endures forever. And I love verse two. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say it. Has God redeemed you? Has he pulled you out of the miry bog? Has he rescued your life from the pit? Then say it. Gather around. Let's lift up the name of God. Look with me now at verse 11 under the same theme, the expression of God's goodness. David says, come you children, listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. David was a warrior and an anointed king, but he's not too big of a deal to teach the five-year-old's class. He understood something. If you wanna propagate a conviction, train the children. And this is what he does. He gathers them around that he might instruct them in the fear of the Lord. Are you lacking Sunday school volunteers, David says? Sign me up. Because I don't want them to just understand certain realities about God. I want to be the living example. Oh, Nikki, oh, Julie, oh, Ben, oh, Dave. God is so good. Let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you about my week. His providence, his leading his care, his kindness, his goodness. My life is riddled with stories, young man, young woman. of God's goodness to me, let me tell you about the fear of the Lord, walking in awe of God, knowing who he is as a great king who sits on the throne and who he is as a tender father. Verse 12, David says, who is the man who desires life? And love's length of days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Who is the man who desires life? He says, do you want to live life with a capital L? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Because when you walk in the light, you taste and you see his goodness. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. Can I ask you, when was the last time you grabbed someone and said, do you have five minutes? I gotta tell you about the goodness of God. I'm 75 years old, but each year grows sweeter. I can't wait to meet my Savior. So first we see the experience of God's goodness. Secondly, the expression of God's goodness. Those who like what they eat, express it. And third and finally, the assurance of God's goodness in 15 through 22. Sometimes we believe that God is good when our circumstances are good, but God's goodness is not dictated by our circumstances. God's goodness is anchored in his character And David knows that God is good and he's assured of this goodness because he is a child of God. Look with me at verse 15. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. 
David knows that God's eyes are on him. And second, Chronicles 16, 9, I love the verse. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro. Why? So that he may strongly support the man whose heart is entirely his. And God's eyes are looking upon us. He sees us. This is what we see in Genesis 16, that God is El Roy. He's not a distant observer. He sees us and he knows us and he knows every hair on our head. He holds our tears in a bottle. Verse 16 and 17, the face of the Lord, he's obviously speaking metaphorically, is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The righteous cry and the Lord hears. My daughter is one years old. She's 15 months and we drop her off in the nursery. And one of the cool parts about going to pick up your kid after church is you round the corner and you hear this choir of crying. But above all the cries, I hear one, right? Whose? My daughter's. My daughter's. It's distinct. I know it because she's my daughter. And David says that when the righteous cry, the Lord hears, not just like he's, ah, what is that? No, he knows and he hears our cry. David is saying that God looks upon me, not just in the sense where he gets highlight reels of our successes and failures, but that he watches carefully upon his children in love and tenderness and with compassion. Verse 18 David says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's near. God's omnipresence is the dread of those who reject him. But it is the greatest treasure of those who walk with God. David will reflect on this elsewhere in Psalm 139, right? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn or settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. What does David think of God's presence in his life? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. The more I understand it, the more I realize I'm just at the base of the mountain and the more thrilling this is for me. But God's presence is always precious to me, but it's, it's especially precious when I'm brokenhearted. The Lord is particularly near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Have you been crushed in spirit? Have you been ganged up on? Have you been wounded by someone else? David says, God is near to you. He's a good God. And he's near. And he doesn't just offer a hand of support by putting his hand on your shoulder, he offers a hand of strength that lifts up those who have been crushed. Not only does God care, he preserves. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. The righteous are not immune to difficulty. In fact, what does it say here? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, meaning that if you're a righteous man or woman, your life will be riddled with difficulty. But ultimately, in 
one way in glory or in this earth, the Lord will deliver you out of them all. Then in verse 20, David says, he keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. David is reflecting on his own experience But that experience is launching us into the future because we would be sticking our heads in the sand to think that none of the bones of those who know God are broken. So what is David saying? Well, this is one of the Psalms that David is reaching beyond his own own experience to, to something else. David has seen his brothers and his friends dead on the fields of battle around him. So of whom does he speak? Well, apart from verse 8, these words in verse 20 are most familiar to you if you know your New Testament and you know to whom these words refer. You know that it says in the Gospel of John that when Jesus was being crucified, in order to hasten the deaths of those who were crucified, they would break the leg so that they would quickly die of asphyxiation. So they went with this big hammer-like device and smashed the legs of the man on the left and Then the man on the right, and when they came to Jesus, saying that he was already dead, they stabbed him with a spear, but did not break his bones. There is a thread here in this psalm, like a Christmas sweater, that we are invited to pull and pull and pull until we can be absolutely assured and convinced of the goodness of God in every single situation, not just because God saw David through a crisis, but because of when on those, in those hours when Jesus was hanging on the cross, when his bones were not broken, you and I can be absolutely convinced of the goodness of God. Paul speaks about this in Romans 8. We love these words. We know that in all things, God works for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The question is, how can we know that God is a good God and he's working everything out for good? The answer is typically in the following verses. Because he did not spare his only son. And if he did not spare his only son, he will stop at nothing to convince you and assure you of his goodness and his precious word. And we can be sure that whatever the darkness, whatever the distress if he has provided to us his son and everything we need for a life of righteousness, we can say God is good. If you were to pray this evening, God, how can I know more of your goodness? The answer in scripture and the answer that echoes down the hall of eternity, the father would respond, I gave you my one and only son. I've provided the most credible, vindicating proof of my goodness in the entire world world. Do you believe that God is good? Even the testimonies tonight are such a treat, right? Because they're a calibrator for any guy that's ever going to get up here and teach. Because you're watching God save people. And each year or each week, it's almost like a tuning fork in your own life to go, yeah, God saved me. My life, I was so lost. I was in sin. I was struggling with this. And God rescued me. Look at verse 21. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Why would you reject such a good God? 
Death and suffering is the destiny of the wicked. But look at verse 22. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What's that word there? The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and what? None. No one. There has never been a single person who has run to Yahweh as their refuge, as their deliverer that has been cast aside. Is God not so good? No river of tears can wash away your sin, but there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And if you plunge beneath that flood, all your sins will be washed away and you will be able to sing with David, magnify the Lord with me. Taste and see that he is good. How blessed is the man who finds refuge in Yahweh. Joseph Hart in the 18th century expressed it perfectly in this hymn as I close. He says, how good is the God that we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend. His love is as great as his power and knows neither measure nor end. If you've tasted and seen the goodness of God, can you say amen? Will you pray with me? As your head is bowed, if you need prayer or want to talk to someone, the prayer room to my right is open. If you want to talk with someone even about uh, the need for prayer or more questions about what it looks like to run to God as a savior. He died for sin and he rose for our justification and he gives us, even as we read in Ephesians, a hope, an inheritance and a present power that not only saves us but enables and sustains us until we meet him in glory. God, we're so grateful for the gift of your precious word. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would preach a stronger sermon than any man ever could. God, I want to taste your goodness more. I want to see your goodness more. Lord, I pray that I would be able to say with a honest heart, how sweet are your words to my taste. I find them more valuable than gold. Yes, fine gold. God, I pray that you would satisfy us in a way that no earthly thing ever could. God, we, even as we sang tonight, such rich songs filled with much truth. I'm so thankful that that truth is anchored in your word. God, I'm so grateful for this church. Lord, we pray uh, for the people that know you. We, we, uh, as Paul said, press on and pursue the prize of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And for those in here that do not know you, God, will you give them the conviction over their sin and an understanding that, of what we just read in verse 22, that all who come to Yahweh as refuge, he will never cast aside. Isaiah 55, if you are thirsty, come, come to the waters and drink. Lord, we're just so thankful to be your children. We're thankful that you are our heavenly father. We're thankful that our home is in heaven. And we're thankful, Lord, uh, for the family of God. We love you and we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, guys.